We'll find out. Good morning. Well, Sam, good morning to you. Not to pick on you, but we hadn't seen you this morning, so. We didn't do community group this morning, so we missed out. If you could pull up uh, Romans 5, 12 to uh, 14, I would appreciate it. You're good. We won't read it on this one, though. By all accounts, the book of Romans is one of the toughest books in the Bible to understand. Uh, The apostle Peter even said, some things that Paul writes are difficult to understand. And I'm imagining not only these particular set of verses, but the whole book is a bit of a wrestling match for most people. We're going to read this, and I am purposely going to ignore uh, the second half of verse 12 that starts and the first time we go through it, then we're going to come back. Because that little uh, verse there, or part of a verse, causes a lot of heartache and heartburn for people throughout the world studying the Bible. So let's go. We're in chapter 5 of Romans, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and we're going to skip that, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, and the law being the law of Moses, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. If we go back to the first part. I didn't realize it until I was asked to do this sermon that this is where the idea of original sin came from. This and 1 Corinthians 15, 22, I think it is, has a very brief part about death came, or sin came through Adam. But until you read this in the Bible, there's nothing in the Old Testament that suggests original sin, nothing in the Gospels that suggests original sin. Nothing in any of the epistles that suggest original sin. And in fact, when Paul wrote this, was they're guesstimating, if I'm remembering rightly, in like the 60s, not the 1960s, I remember the 1960s, in the old 60s. And it wasn't until 100 years later that they have any record of any of the church fathers using that verse or these verses at all. And then it took another hundred years or so to get the concept of, well, this is original sin. And then a few centuries later, the Catholic Church, with that concept of original sin, tied in the idea of baptism to original sin, and that baptism washes away original sin. I am thankful that our pastors here believe in the five solas. I don't know if you remember Tony and Nick and Chris have mentioned we are saved by faith or through faith, by grace alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and our basis for all this is Scripture alone. The Catholic Church, and I'm not picking on the Catholic Church because they weren't even called the Catholic Church and it was just the church, took something that didn't exist and assigned baptism the role of washing away whatever this is that Paul's describing. 
Well, if you believe in sola scriptura, which the Protestant church started out believing, you would say, well, wait a minute. Show me in the Bible where there's some basis to say baptism is there to wash away this thing called original sin. You won't find it. By all rights, baptism is part of the new covenant that Jesus shed, when he shed his blood for us, the old covenant with Abraham had circumcision as the sign of the covenant. If you're circumcised, then that shows you bought into the covenant. With the church age that we call the church age, but it was all Christ's church, but with the new covenant that Christ did, the new sign of the covenant was baptism. It doesn't have any magic power to wash something away. It's a statement that says, I have accepted what God has told me through Scripture. Now, normally, Paul, the guy that wrote this, also wrote to uh, Timothy, second letter to Timothy, that we are to rightly divide the Word of God. The Greek word is to cut. My normal pattern would be, let me start cutting on this darn thing and see where we get. And it's not a bad approach. The trouble I would run into is that second what would be called, for some people, a subordinate clause, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, throws people into a tizzy. If you just go, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, which we know when Adam sinned, Jesus shut down access to the Garden of Eden, where was the tree of life. If you ate from the tree of life, you wouldn't die. Ergo, you are going to die. So we know death came through Adam. But then, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. A lot of people get back and read that and they're going, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And then some other people will go, no, 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 no. That negates what he just said. If sin came through, sin and death came through what Adam did, what do you mean so death spread to all men because all sinned? Is it Adam sinned and we're held responsible or all men sinned and we're held responsible? As I'm reading commentary on this, and I didn't verify it, but apparently, and it was, I don't remember if it was John MacArthur, it was one of the MacArthur's, wrote a very exhausting work on Romans. And he originally went with the first version of all death came through Adam. Well, apparently, according to this one commentator, about 20 years later, that had bothered him so much, he changed his stance on original sin. And I'm not going to settle for you what the proper stance is on original sin. If you're looking for excitement today, I'm not the guy. <laughs> I don't have an easy answer. This is one of those ones I'd have to agree with Peter. But that doesn't mean we don't take it into consideration. All of God's word is worthy of you know, study because it's good for teaching. But rather than my direct approach that I usually take with 20-some verses to support it, we're going to take a kind of a scenic tour with 20-some verses. <laughs> and we're still going to look at it, but before we get there, I want to set up the stage for something else because oftentimes I don't see the forest for the trees. I do, like Paul says, get out your hatchet and rightly divide the word. Well, today, before we divide the word, I want to take a tour and look at the forest first before we worry about one particular part of the word. So if you could bring up the uh, picture of if, now, you're not going to be able to read that from this distance, 
But a long time ago, I noticed as I read the Bible, because I grew up hearing about God's unconditional love. God's unconditional love. But as I'm reading the Bible, this word, if, is found uh, 1,678 times in the Bible. And most of those are conditional ifs. In fact, the very first one, out of Genesis 4, if you do well, will you not be accepted? This is God talking to Cain. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the, at, yeah, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And by the way, that's the first time the word sin is ever used in the Bible is in that same verse. We have God saying, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you repent, you will be forgiven. If you will do this, you will be blessed. If, if, if. I came to the realization that God is so... I saw that look, Mother. <laughs> God is so consistent, so steadfast, he tells us throughout the Bible what he expects of us, the godly character he wants for us. And so as I read through just about any book of the Bible, some still throw me. I don't know what to do with Song of Solomon. I read that, and I'm, it looks like a sex story to me. And maybe it is, and, but I don't worry about that because overall I can read through God's word and say, ah, look what God's saying to me. Well, just recently, another word, and I had seen it before. Can you bring up the covenant old? And I've been aware of covenants in the Bible, but the word covenant shows up 319 times. A covenant is a legal contract. Yes, I'm in agreement with you. There's different kind of covenants, and we're going to co cover a special one today on our scenic tour around everything. But when God spoke to Noah, he said, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark. And this is where we also get eventually the rainbow in the sky. He makes the covenant with Abraham, or Abram at the time. This is a sign of the covenant I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. So different things go on. But covenant, a legal document, is what the Bible is. God's not afraid of the law. We hear, oh, you're being legalistic. We can't do that. You're right. We don't want to be legalistic, but that doesn't negate that God tells us very clearly who he is, what he expects from us. Uh, bring up the covenant new, if you would. Oh, now, you know what? Skip the covenant new. All that mentioned in that one was that God had a new covenant with us because through the shedding of his blood. Here is the thing that's come to me recently. I did not read this man's work. I've read a bunch of commentary on it, and then somebody's take a man by the name of Meredith Klein wrote a book called Treaty of the Great King, The Covenant Structure of Deuteronomy. This guy was a scholar of the Near East in biblical times. And it came to him as he read, reread, studied what had happened in history that the book of Deuteronomy was structured amazingly like the treaties that the kings of the Near East back in biblical times would set up. And these weren't a treaty of like today where United States with Russia, we agree to this. This is a treaty of the great king. Basically in part A, the great king says, I'm the great king. I've kicked everybody's butt. I'm in charge. 
Second part is he tells what, in the treaty, what he's done for his people or the people that he's putting under this treaty. And basically it is, I've kicked everybody's butt, and now I've kicked your king's butt, now you're under my dominion. And I'm going to give you protection. And the third part of the treaties was what are called stipulations. If you're faithful to me, which is the first part of these special treaties, you're supposed to be loyal to me, nobody else. When Jesus was going to be crucified and Pilate's asking them, you'd crucify your king? Does anybody remember their response? We have no king but Caesar. Not God. You would expect of all people, you know, even if they don't say, Jesus isn't our king, God's our king. Mm -mm. We have no king but Caesar. Hmm. And then the specific requirements were whatever they had to do. You send me so much gold every year. You send me so much wheat. You do whatever you got to do that I tell you to do. The fourth part was the sanctions. If you do it, you live. Ain't that cool? I'm going to let you live. Oh, by the way, if you don't do it, you die, your family dies, whatever needs to happen, because I'm the king, I'm the mighty king, I'm the great king. And the last part of these treaties that this guy noticed, had seen, was administration. If you're obedient, I'll let you live, and I'll let your family live. And if your family's obedient, their family will live. It all rolls down. Well, this guy... Meredith Klein, which, what, from what I read, very sharp mind, very good guy. He was bothered, or some people were bothered, the mere fact that he would bring up that it was a legal type of document. It's all about grace. There's no legalism. Forget it. But he stood by his guns and says, no, this is the way Deuteronomy is written, folks. It's a legal document. Read it. And by the way, if you read through it, you'll find all these attributes. Well, some others came along. One included is Gary North. He kind of summed it up slightly different way. He says there is sovereignty in the first part of these treaties throughout the Bible. And by the way, this guy, I'll tell you now, they don't limit it to just Deuteronomy. Their claim is that the entire Bible is a covenant. If you read consistently throughout the Bible, you will see that God tells us who he is, that he is Yahweh God, and I just found this interesting. If you go to ChristianAnswers.net, they say there are 950 names for God, just in case you need to find a name for God someday. The second part of the treaty, or God's legal document with us, is God's authority that he gives to man, and we're going to cover all these more specifically in a minute. But God gives his authority to man. The third part of a treaty, just like this one, is the law. And where do we find the law? Scripture only. It's not my opinion. It's not the Pope's opinion. It's not the high prophet's opinion. It, you go to the Bible. You may argue the interpretation of something, but if you don't find it in the Bible, it's not one of God's laws. The fourth part, just like this, there's sanctions. If you're obedient, if you do this, you will see these blessings. If you're disobedient, by the way, it's called hell ultimately, you go to hell. And the fifth part, the administration or succession, is long-term. And we're going to cover that in a moment. 
And I'll tell you my take real quick on this. If you look at the treaty structure, the five things, first part is God tells us who he is. Second part, God tells us who we are, namely we're his people. Third part, God tells us what he expects from us. Fourth part, God tells us the consequences of our obedience or disobedience. And fifth part, God tells us how it all ends. It's not a, a, a mystical book that takes somebody special to understand it. God's pretty clear spoken, but once you see a certain pattern, it's like, oh, that's even clearer than I realized. All right, so let's go to uh, Genesis 1-1, if you would. First part of the treaty, God tells us who he is. Very beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, who created the heavens and the earth? Sure wasn't us, wasn't man. I'm lucky to make a good meal on it, you know, any day, let alone create something out of nothing. Let's go to uh, Genesis 1.31. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Let's go to Psalm 47, 6 and 7. Oh, you have the first, okay. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king. God's a king. God's a king that would have a contract with us, a sovereign covenant with us. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with the psalm. God tells us very clearly, if you read throughout the Bible, in fact, the book of Romans that we're in, first chapter, first seven verses, tells you who God is, who Paul is as a representative, and who we are in relation to God. Seven verses, and we've covered you know, the first two parts of the contract with God. So let's go to the second part now. Let's go to Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every every living thing that moves on the earth. God just told us in those verses who we are. We're created in his image. We're not like the fish. We're not like the cattle. We're not like the birds of the air. We are created in his image. And as such, we have a responsibility for the rest of creation that we live on. We're not responsible for the sun, obviously, or the moon, or, well, maybe the moon eventually. But God gives us because we're in his image. We have that responsibility. God's contract. We've got who he is who we are, then, now, let's do one more here. Psalm 103 and 4, if you would. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. Gosh, God created us in his image, and we're supposed to reflect that back. We're supposed to tell him, thanks, God. You're such a good and awesome God. Thank you. 
All right, let's go into the third part of the contract. Let's go to Joshua 22.5. Here, you know what? Let me move these out of your way. Then they won't. Here, let's just move them up here. Then they can enjoy them. And good work, sir. You did good. Joshua 22, verse 5 here. Only, this is where, again, we're looking at God's uh, part of the contract that tells us what he expects of us. Only, be careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. To love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Hmm. We're supposed to do what? We're supposed to hold on to him. What else in there? Several things you could probably pull out. Keep his commandments. Hmm. Ooh, and serve even. Isn't that pretty cool? Let's go to John 14, 15, because a lot of people will say, yeah, but that's Old Testament stuff. New Testament, John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Gosh, God's legal contract with us. And it's not a, again, this is a contract like the ancient kings. God has the authority. God has the power. We don't have the authority and power, only what he gives to us. So it's not like I approach God one day and says, you know what, God, let's strike a deal. I'll do this for you if you'll do that for me. And he says, Dave, I needed you, just you. Gosh, you showed up just in time. What was I going to do without you? No. God started from the very beginning. He created the earth. He made us in his image. <laughs> ah, that's good. And he tells us what he expects from us. And trust me, we are going to get back to Romans here shortly. So we know God tells it. In fact, we have the Ten Commandments. We have others in Scripture telling us how he expects us to behave, to love mercy. He's not excited about uh, the the burnt offerings, even though he's the one commanded it. He wanted our hearts to be towards him. So now let's look at the fourth part of the contract, which was blessing and curses. Deuteronomy 28.1. And if you... Wait a minute. Yeah, that is 28.1. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Notice the second word there. If, if, oh, conditional again. If you faithfully obey the voice of, and actually the word we see as Lord is actually Yahweh. God tells us his name numerous times in the Old Testament. If you faithfully obey the voice of Yahweh, your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. It's a blessing. Starting in chapter 28, verse 1 through verses 14, God lists the blessings that will come if we are faithful to him. Uh, let's go to 1 John 5, 4. For everyone, New Testament, just so some people, yeah, but that's Old Testament stuff. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Notice that faith, the soul is, gosh. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. That's a blessing. Let's look at the curses side of things, which starts at uh, Deuteronomy 28, 15. But, and then that word, 
if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or Yahweh your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. I find it rather interesting. 28, 1 through 14 tells the uh, blessings. 28, 15 through 68 tells the curses. If you obey, I can sum it up pretty short list here, folks. Here's You disobey? Hmm. I wonder if God's trying to give us a hint. Let's pull up the woe JPEG, if you would. This one's going to be a little tough. In fact, I don't know if you can read it at all. A lot of modern-day Christians want to insist that, but those curses, that's Old Testament stuff. The word woe shows up in the Bible 95 times, and I didn't write down how many of those belong in the New Testament. But if we start here in the New Testament, we have, and this is Jesus talking, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. Then he goes on, woe to the world for temptations, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Those are curses, woes. If you had done this, it would have gone well for you, but because you're so stubborn, suffering is going to come upon you. And then our last thing on the contract. So we've had God telling us who he is, who we are, what he expects from us, what the blessings and curses, rewards, however you want to look at it are. If we go into 1 John, which this is, 5.11, he tells us, and this is a this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. There should be a... Oh, that was the whole thing there. So what is he telling us long term? We get eternal life. Not only are we entering God's kingdom on this earth, we get to enter God's kingdom for the long term. And for the church, let's go to Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So not only do we individually have a long-term promise, we as the church have a promise. We are being built together. The unity that God has with himself, he's building amongst us now and into eternity. We are being built into a holy temple, which is not a literal building for anybody that has concerns. It is us as that building. All right, so now we get to go back to Romans. Um, uh, you know what? Yeah, let's do Genesis. Because this does lead into it, and I was going to skip it, but thank you. So this is, this is Genesis 2, 15 and 16 and 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, ooh, that darn word commanded, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
which then leads us into back to Romans. God just told Adam, you're going to, you know, if you're disobedient, there is a curse. There is something that's going to happen, and it's called death. So let's go back. We'll read the whole thing again. Therefore, just as, oh, I'm sorry. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam, which we just saw from Adam, to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. I'm still not ready to wrestle with that verse yet. So we're going to keep on our tour here. Let's go to Roman 1.18. Yep, that's it. For the wrath of God, and what we're going to see here, these guys have covered the book of Roman well. We've already read this. This is in chapter 1. God is already through, Paul said, all have sinned. There's nobody that can say, ah, but I wasn't so bad. I don't deserve punishment. And that's where these next set of verses are going to take us. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And we're going to, before we go to the second part of this, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Simple translation. Even if you've never seen a Bible, if nobody's ever come up to you with a Bible or told you about the Bible, we are told that God's creation is sufficient to tell you God is God. And we're supposed to have been praising him from the very beginning. But because of unrighteousness and ungodliness, we've darkened our minds. Okay, we can go to that second part. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So, Bill, let's go back to that one a second. There was something there I had. Oh, the so they are without excuse part. I just lost it again. All right, let's go to this next one. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay, Paul's setting the ground again. Nobody can raise their hand and says, but I wasn't there that day when you told me about sin, so I'm innocent. He just told us, that we've known about God since the earth was created. It wasn't something hidden from people. Let's go to 3.9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Because they had the law. I mean, they didn't have to trust in creation. They had the law. He's not, or she's not bothering me if you're okay. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already been charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written... None is righteous. No, not one. Hmm. How many people are righteous? None. We've got the contract. God tells us who he is, who we are, what he expects from us. There's blessings and curses. And we've all failed. 
Romans uh, 3, let's see, 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. My take, and this is just the Dave Kobe take on this. Paul is writing to the church in Rome. The church in Rome, or Rome of that day, would be like Washington, D.C. of today. It's the power center. It's where the important people live, not the flyover country. And even though the people in the church aren't necessarily the big wigs, they're going to have a mindset similar to what is around them. So as Paul's writing to these people in Rome, he's got both Jews and Greeks. Well, under the new covenant that Christ has established, everybody has access to God. The Jews in the churches throughout Paul's ministry are always coming in saying, you know what, though? If only you guys would get circumcised and follow these particular set of rules, then you'd be okay. And Paul, no, no, no. Forget it. What you need to do is circumcise your heart. You guys are still stiff-necked. Pay attention. So the church in Rome has two basic groups. The Jews, who always seem to want to cling, to, even though they've been converted, to some of the old lifestyles, and the Greeks, or the Gentiles, who are more worldly, more modern. And in modern Rome of the day, you had the Stoics, who says, if you just tough it out, if you develop your character, you will succeed. And Paul's telling everybody, guys, there's not a one of us that can claim righteousness before God. No matter how many push-ups you can do, no matter how much you deprive your flesh, no matter how awesome you build your abs, you don't get sanctification in my kingdom. So my take on all of this is, because Paul was a Pharisee, Paul was in essence a lawyer. He knew that the Bible, Scripture, was in essence a legal document. Not in the sense of, uh, it's only this and forget that. It's God revealing who he is through all this has some very set standards. And Paul, trying to get these people on board, because we're supposed to be one unit. It's not supposed to be, well, the Jews of the church and the Greeks of the church, or the Methodists over here and those guys over at Price Chapel or Gospel Community. We're supposed to be one body. We're supposed to be finding fellowship and how to work together. Not that there isn't going to be friction, but Paul, and this again is a David take on this, Paul wasn't somebody that wrote just because, gosh, he had a thought. Wouldn't that be neat if? Paul was constantly getting bombarded. Well, you know, if you would do this or if they would do that. They even took him out and stoned and tried to kill him because of what he was saying. Paul didn't just write things to write it because it sounded good. He was responding to the issues of the day. So when we go back to our original verses, 12, 13, and 14, which I shouldn't have buried, can you pull up 12, 13, and 14? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over, oh, yeah, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, 
who was a type of the one who was to come. Taking the forest view of this, I look at that and I say, I scratch my head why he phrased things like he did. But I just see Paul building the case. We're all accountable, folks. No matter how much you try to wiggle free of it, we're all accountable. Now, let's get on with living our life. In fact, he comes back later in Romans chapter 11, I think, because apparently the Gentiles are getting boastful now. Well, the Jews had it. They lost it, but now we've got it. And Paul tells him, you don't think that if God cut them out of the olive tree, you can't be cut out also? Remember the blessings and the curses? If you're obedient, we will end with one thing from Ephesians. This is from chapter 2 of Ephesians. We're going 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, which the, uh, both the Jews and the Greeks would have, in Rome would have been guilty of, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. For what? And who prepared those works? We're prepared to... Do we work for salvation? No. But once we are saved, does God have expectations of us? Remember those blessings and curses? They still exist. He tells us if we're obedient, we'll, you know, I forget the word, but the crown. And if we're not, we'll pass through the fire, but only like by the skin of our teeth. We'll still be saved. But it ain't going to be pretty, folks. God created us for works. Works aren't a bad thing. So where did sin come from? I know. I take Paul at his word. I don't ever argue with scripture, but I did earlier on. If sin came into the world through one man, sin came into the world through one man, I have no issue with that. Can I explain it? Well, no. But I don't need to. Like I said, I have trouble to make a good meal. God can create the world. I'm lucky to create a good argument. I just know we're called to be obedient to an all-powerful God who made us in his image. And we're to do it with love and praise. So let's pray. Father, I want to thank you yet again. You just so consistently tell us who you are, who we are, what you expect from us, what flows from that expectation, and I think that's just awesome. We don't have to guess with you. You're not a God of chaos. You're not a God of, let's see what we can trip them up with today. You're a God of steadfastness a God of love, a God of mercy. So I thank you for that. And I pray for each person in attendance today that you just would have your hand upon them. Anoint each one of us, Lord. Give us your grace, your peace, your understanding. In fact, Nick pointed out one of the blessings last week, peace that comes through God. I thank you for that peace. I thank you for this body you've made me a part of. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.